Would you turn with me in the book of 1 Corinthians to the 11th chapter, beginning with verse 17. 1 Corinthians 11, beginning with verse 17. We've been going through the book of 1 Corinthians, and this is our 55th sermon so far. And we have spent four weeks on the previous verses, uh, verses 1 through 16, which dealt with the issue of order in the church of manhood and womanhood, male, female, and specifically with the question of whether or not it was appropriate for women to give a signal of their deference to the male sex through a head covering. And now we turn to something which is even more scandalous, which is their behavior in division and Uh, schism, heresy, and particularly having to do with the Lord's Supper. Let us hear the word of God, which is eternally true. But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. This is the word of the Lord. In America today, we have a melting pot. And the melting pot is bring to me your poor, your sick, your tired. Bring to me every race, every creed, every nationality, and we will melt them together and we will have one nation. And for many years, this worked beautifully. For many years, we were able, through some speed bumps, to incorporate the Irish, to incorporate the Roman Catholics, to incorporate, and we're still working on this one, African Americans. Today, we're all facing the issue primarily of the Hispanics, people from Central and South America. And much of the future of political parties will depend upon how we deal with this. I'll tell you, and this is not my preaching, this is just my stupid opinion, I'll tell you that I hope Hispanics will come more and more into this country. And there are a number of things about particular races that are attractive and unattractive, right? Nobody respects the Scott, Scott for being tight. Nobody, uh, you know, there are certain traits. Like, for instance, Paul tells us certain traits of the Cretans, right? They're liars. This testimony is true. What I like about Hispanics is that, first of all, they work hard. When we were building our house, Mike Bowles hired a crew of men, mostly from Mexico, to come and do uh, the sheetrocking, to do the, the drywall. It was unbelievable to see the work ethic. Unbelievable. They didn't resemble men, they resembled ants. 
And in, in a heartbeat, the home was done, all of it. On stilts going, they just, it was unbelievable how hard they worked. Another thing, and this is one of the reasons that Mary Lee and I like to go to Mexico when we're able to get out of the country for a vacation, is that if you're down there, you see fathers with their children everywhere. In Mexico, fathers are not embarrassed by having children. And so they have families. They're fruitful. And the fathers take delight in their children. It's so very obvious. One of the ways you see it is you see a roly-poly man sitting in about a foot of water with all his children jumping all over him. He gets sand, he gets water, and he just sits there like a great Buddha. And I say, bring them into America. Let's have fatherhood again. Let's have affection. Let's have sand and mud and, and water. Now, that's, that, you don't have to pay for that. That's just my political thought. And so I say, when we read the scriptures that talk about the sojourner in your midst, we should think about Hispanics today. And we should have some connection between the Old Testament commands concerning the sojourner in our midst and what our immigration policy is. I don't know what. I don't claim to know what. But America's a melting pot. That is one of the best instincts of our nation. All right? But we have a problem. And the problem is a melting pot only works when there's melting. And the melting is stopped. The reason the melting has stopped is that we now have leaders who reward evil and punish good. And they no longer have faith to declare the boundaries of the nation. Literally, but also morally. They no longer require people to forsake evil and to give themselves to good. And so one of the ways this works is that the government and its masters, the teachers and the professors, <laughs> are you with me? Okay. The government and its masters have come up with a scheme, and the scheme is that they will teach something that they call pluralism and diversity. And that they will indoctrinate every new citizen of our country in pluralism and diversity. And therefore, we will be one nation. Not under God, you understand, but under pluralism and diversity. Now, what is pluralism and diversity? Well, it's a vacuous concept into which every man can import whatever he wants to import. And so pluralism is you. <laughs> and pluralism is me. Pluralism is... Uh, white, black, Muslim, Christian, pluralism is homosexual, heterosexual, bisexual, transsexual, transsexual in the body of a bisexual looking like a woman. Pluralism is the grand tapestry. It is the quilt. It is, it is, it is everyone's fiber but none of them woven together. There is no order, there is no unity, there is no discipline. Pluralism is every man doing that which is right in his own eyes. 
But you know that when it says that in the book of Joshua, it's actually not good. It's not good when each man does that which is right in his own eye. And so diversity and pluralism are the way that our government keeps from having to melt anybody together. But rather to require everybody to get along. And that is who we are today. That's what Alan Bloom said in the closing American mind. That's what Rodney King said. The only law left is we must all get along. And so Rodney King said, can't we all get along? And Alan Bloom said, the only value left in America is the value that there is no truth and we must all submit to that truth that there is no truth. And so pluralism and diversity are a grand scheme to evacuate any truth, any law, any, any order from our nation except the order that we all get along. And the way the government says we're going to get along is by none of us having any commitments other than getting along. And the way we're going to get along is to not have any right or wrong, but to have values where we share them with one another. You remember I told about hearing a sermon of a preacher in town here, where his whole sermon was, there is absolute truth. And every time he said it, he would never say there was absolute truth. What he would say every time was, I believe in absolute truth. And it's just like, dude, <laughs> you know, speaking only for myself, and what do I know anyhow? I believe in absolute truth. Now, that's better than saying I believe in relativism, right? But I mean, nobody anymore says, thus says the Lord God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Nobody says, in whom we live and move and have our being. He has set the boundaries of every nation. And mind you, the Apostle Paul was saying this in Athens, in the Areopagus, to the most sophisticated people that have ever existed. That was the testimony of the people of God there. But today we say, I believe in absolute truth. I know you don't, but I just want you to know where I, I, I my personal commitments are to absolute truth. I mean, I, I, I don't expect you, but I want you to know I and that's why Alan Bloom in the Closing American Mind said, don't ever use the word value. Don't ever refer to your commitments as values. And the reason is, the minute you say values, you have bowed the knee to bail. You have admitted that it's a personal subjective judgment. And he was a homosexual philosopher with no faith. At University of Chicago, Come on, people. We're Christians. We should have more wisdom than Alan Bloom, but we don't. We're, we're, we're sheep to the slaughter. And we believe them when they talk about pluralism diversity. What we don't realize is the, thunder, the thunderheads are all across the western horizon, and every one of them is going to rain on Christian faith. Because Christians will be the only people who will not bow the knee to Baal. And what is the Baal? Well, the Baal is pluralism, diversity, and the pantheon of gods. Christians are the only ones who will say, I will not bow. There is one God, maker of heaven and earth. Guys, 
it is incompatible with pluralism and diversity and values. It's incompatible. I keep trying to tell you this. It is incompatible. And if you will not invite people to church, your goose is cooked. You're done. I, I have never felt this way as much as I've felt it recently. When I see that we have not had faith for our personal relationships on Sunday morning, you're done. You're done. Because the church has stopped evangelizing. And it is your private truth, and you come here and I'm your guilty pleasure. And I, I hate it. I hate it. I absolutely hate it. I hate it. I hate it. Not because I don't like you to like me. <laughs> you know, it makes me feel warm to have your affection. And I know I do, most of you. I know the rest of you are hopeless. You know? <laughs> but that's not the issue. The issue is you don't love Jesus. And you don't fear God. And you don't believe that the people that you know and love all across your life are headed for the judgment seat of God. You have no desire to warn them. And so this is your guilty pleasure. Come on. I'm gaga for Jesus Christ. I love him because I'm a sinner and there was no hope for me. And I had a father who taught me about my sin, who kicked me out of the home. <laughs> he said, Tim, you're not serving God. You may not live in my home. And then I knew I had a choice between my father and my mother and my sister and my brothers and all my ancestors. You remember, Jerry Clark says, my ancestors would rise up out of the grave and get me if I didn't stand up and let you take my seat. You remember that? <laughs> you know, all my ancestors would rise up out of the grave and get me if I did not serve the only true God. And so... When I gave myself to sin, I knew that there was a holy God who would judge me because my father would not lie to me. And he knew and told me that it was him or rebellion. And I knew I could not get my dad to parse the difference between rebellion and him. That God was his God and I was not his son. Do you understand that? That's Christian faith, where a father is willing to say goodbye to his fourth son rather than to ever, ever nuance and parse the holiness of God and the wickedness of that son. Now you're wondering, what on earth does this have to do with our text? I ask you the question, where does peace, where does the melting pot, where does unity come from? You know what the Bible says unity of a nation comes from? It comes from civil magistrates to whom we submit who reward good and punish evil. And so what I'm trying to say at the very beginning is if a nation's civil magistrates Stop punishing evil and rewarding good. Will you have unity? No, and this is what we're seeing all over us today. 
What we're seeing is the fracturing of the melting pot of the unity of the United States of America. Now, I'm not a civil magistrate. Thank goodness I don't have to live in that pressure cooker. But I am a preacher of the gospel. And therefore, the unity of this church and of the bride of Christ universal, that's my focus. But what I keep trying to tell you is, if you're unwilling to speak of the glory of God, of his holiness, and of the sin of man, if you're unwilling to warn people in your life, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, everything other than an hour and a half, The church is destroyed because the only way people will be added to the church is if you're willing to use murder about abortion and sodomy about homosexuality. Do you understand me? You can't nuance the gospel. You can't do it. You can't nuance incest. You can't nuance child abuse. You can't nuance the pride of academics. And Scripture never has men of God who nuance sin or righteousness. It doesn't happen. And that's not how I was saved. My father met, he set his face like flint, and I had to leave his home. And then I knew where I had to come back. And there was a home that I could come back to. And it was a home of righteousness. My father didn't specialize in dulling the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. He didn't think that success as a father depended upon him hiding the division between light and darkness. It was clear, you are not serving God, you may not stay in my home. And if he had not done that, I would not be a preacher of righteousness today. One time I was driving up to Uh, Breezy Hill Farm crossing the Wisconsin River on the Northwest Tollway in Wisconsin. And it's a long bridge. Mary Lee was asleep. She always sleeps when we drive. Now sometimes I sleep when she drives. And I was watching a van pulling a trailer behind it, and the trailer was loaded with canoes, and it was a windy night. We were headed northwest. And I saw that trailer going, it was like, it was on ice. It was sliding laterally. It's just, and I just thought, yikes, you know, there was something like nine or 12 canoes on it. And of course, what was happening was the wind was catching those canoes and, and getting under and lifting it enough that it would just slide out to the right and slide out to the left, and you could see it pulling on the back of the van, you know. And I was like, yikes, you know. And sure enough, we hit the bridge over the Wisconsin River, and what happens? Kabam! It's off the hitch, 
It's flying in the air. Every canoe's coming off of it. They're all over the interstate. And so you know what I did? I put on my brakes and, and you know, right? I just sort of wove my way in the canoes, tooted my horn as I went by the van and, and kept driving. Come on. You think I did that? Of course I didn't do that. What did I do? I did what any idiot has to do. What did I do? I slammed on my brakes, flipped around, started putting on my lights like this. Why? Because the people behind me have no idea the road is filled with canoes and a trailer. What am I supposed to do? And now all of you just think I'm peachy keen. Well, isn't he wonderful? That's why we have him as a pastor. You know? Tim's so brave. Oh, yeah. I was so brave. <laughs> now, that was the moment where duty called. I knew the duty. I did it. That's all. It's not bravery. You just do it, right? Every single one of you would have done it. Except women who wouldn't have had the sense to know what to do. <laughs> oh, right, I'm sorry. I didn't mean that. <laughs> I don't know. Some of you would have. I think Linda would have. Linda, you? I think you probably would have. I think Sieber would have been clueless. But her sons, her sons would have told her what to do. <laughs> Okay, now think about this. If this is what is godliness on an interstate when a trailer flips, what is godliness when it comes to an intersection with a lot of traffic? Is it godly to remove the traffic lights? If you were a policeman standing, say they had a little island at the intersection of the bypass and, and 2nd Street, or 3rd, okay? And you were standing on an island. You were safe. Nobody's going to hit the island. You're at the center of the thing, and you would just watch as the cars would come at 45 and 30 miles an hour, and kabam, and bam, and bam, and you'd look around and say, which for those of you who are young means peace, peace, peace. And that's what our country does today with pluralism and diversity. And you say, well, no, nobody's hitting each other. And I say, oh, come on. Don't you realize that the thing that's absolutely essential is that education must propagandize you to diversity and pluralism and value neutral. All right? And so what's required for education? Well, what's required is just that all these young women kill their babies so that they can finish their degree. Bam! And here all the Christians are going, well, it's a very, very anguished choice. And it's a woman's body, herself. My body, myself, you know? And so what happens is Christians, and even the pagans know that 1.5 million unborn children every year have to die in our country so that we can have our diversity and pluralism. 
In other words, so that the government doesn't have to put up a traffic signal or have that cop actually take his hands out of his pockets and begin to wave and blow a whistle and issue tickets. I mean, how is it that when it comes to traffic, all of us know exactly what would happen if there were no stop signs or stoplights? Right? The world's filled with countries that have that policy. <laughs> and America understands it's right to declare right and wrong when it comes to an intersection to give people a ticket if they don't take their turn. Right? Right? Are you with me? But when it comes to truth, goodness, the government is completely complicit in the slaughter of unborn children that's required by their mother not having to be penalized because she was sexually immoral with a man who was sexually immoral and will not pay the cost of that child. And now it will be the elderly. Now they're telling us the last 30 days in life are what percentage of all health care costs? Approximately, come on. The last 30 days are 20%. So you can immediately have a savings of 20% if you get them to starve themselves to death or be dehydrated. Do you understand this? A little bit of an increase in morphine drips. All it requires is that you don't give them water and you don't give them food. And you can save 20% of your costs in the last 30 days. I mean, do you all understand this? And again, the government's like, peace, dude, peace, you know? Diversity, pluralism, value neutral. Can't we all get along? And the little unborn children are dying, and now the older people are dying, and the Down syndrome kids are being diagnosed in the womb and being killed in the womb. Spina bifida, they're not sewing them up when they're born, and so they die. Peace in my time. Hezekiah. Remember Hezekiah? It's okay as long as I get to live and my sons are the ones that inherit the judgment of God. And this is how you live with your friends. This is how you live with your relatives. You have plausible deniability. You don't put A together with B and conclude C. And so it's cool, it's hip, peace in my time, peace at my family reunion, peace in my job, peace everywhere, peace, 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 peace. And isn't that what Scripture says? Scripture says that false prophets, false civil magistrates, false preachers are known by saying, peace, peace, but there is no peace. And listen, people will say that this is a sermon where I want political power. And I execrate political power. I have always told you that Samuel Johnson is spot on when he says, why, sir, all schemes of political improvement are laughable things. <laughs> I am a shepherd. I love the church. I am called to build the unity of the body of Christ. And the reason I talk about the world and about the language we use 
and about the witness we have is I know that God intends for us to go into all the world bearing the authority of Jesus Christ. That's what he said. He said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything he commands. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so if you're not obeying the Great Commission, then this is all a bunch of bunk because it is impossible to be a private Christian. There is no such thing as a private Christian who will not bear fruit. By their fruit you shall know them. And every single time the church has been private, it's either been because persecution has reduced it to hiding, right, in the catacombs, right? The confessing church of Germany. But we're not there yet. But I see it coming. I tell you. And if you are not faithful in small things, God will not give you the large things. If you will not, now when you still have religious freedom, witness to Jesus Christ, you will be those who deny Jesus Christ when the real persecution comes, and it's not psychological and it's not your job. Do you understand me? This, this morning, is the barometer of your true faith. And if this is a guilty private pleasure where you get to see Tim whooping up on the world, listen, what I'm saying has nothing to do with the world. It has to do with you. I always try to focus the most intense, sharp, direct comments, rebukes, exhortations on you. And so where is your faith? Come on, where is your faith? Where is it? Huh? Yeah, well, Jesus says if it's small, that's wonderful. I hope it is small. If you have the faith of a grain of mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move. But is your faith true? You see, that's the one question no preacher is supposed to ask. Is your faith true? You're supposed to look to your baptism. (laughs) It's like, well, shoot, if you want to look to your baptism, let's let's get it out. Fill it with water. In fact, let's send the cops out. In fact, let's use water cannon. (laughs) More than one way to skin a cat. If we want to look to our baptism... And the Apostle Paul is dealing with division in the church. And you think this has no connection to the text, right? That's what you all think. Remember that woman sat here and she raised, excuse me, what you're saying has nothing to do with us. Remember that? (laughs) You know? Okay, watch, watch. You ready? Listen. But in giving this instruction, okay, I do not praise you 
Because you come together not for the better, for the worse. So what the Apostle Paul is saying is that when the Corinthians were getting together, there was no fruit. There's no fruit. That's what it means to say it's not for the better. When the people of God assemble for worship and it's for the better, there is fruit. There is a growth in faith and there is a growth in the fear of God. There is a growth in love for God, fear of God, and faith to go out and to preach the gospel, right? All right? In giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together not for the better. So it's not just their failure in not having fruit. It's not better. But in fact, it would be better if they had not gotten together because it's, he says it's for the worse, In other words, it would have been better if they had not assembled at all, if they had not worshipped, if they had not been at the Lord's table. It's, you failed by not producing fruit, and in fact, the fruit you produce is so bad, it would have been better if you had never gotten together at all. It's like in the Old Testament, where God says, away from me with your sacred assemblies, your singing of hymns. For, verse 18, in the first place, when you come together as a church, so that's us, I hear that divisions exist among you. Okay? Division. Remember how I talked about the intersection? All the cars are going bam, 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 flipping around, blinking my headlights at night to get them to stop and not hit the canoes. Okay, instead what's going on is the lights have been taken away, the policeman has been taken away, the whistle has been taken away, the tickets have been taken away, the man with his car blinking its light, it's all taken away, what's happening? What's happening is every man is doing that which is right in his own eyes, and so there's complete bloodshed in America today. Because nobody will protect those at the margins of our society. Okay? I hear that divisions exist among you. And in part, I believe it. And you say, well, now, don't make generalizations. There goes Tim again, using hyperbole and exaggeration. You know, don't say divisions exist. I'm not divided. I'm not jealous. I'm not spreading heresy. And he says, okay, okay, all right. In part, I believe it. Come on, guys, get out of the way. I have work to do. In part, I believe it, all right? There, all of you that think you're perfect, I just gave you an out. Okay? Verse 19, for there must also be factions among you so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Now, people, this is a a tiny little statement that just shocks us to the core. Because if there's one thing we know from all the secularists, all the pluralism people, all the diversity people, all the tolerance people, all the value-neutral people, it is that Jesus was about love. Jesus was about unity. Jesus prayed that they may be one as thou and I are one. And so Jesus' ultimate value is peace. Okay? Now listen, they're right. Here's what Jesus said. Jesus said in John, in his great high priestly prayer, 
I do not ask on behalf of these alone, speaking of his disciples there, but for those also who believe in me through their word, and that's us. We have read the word of the testimony of the apostles, and we have believed in Jesus through their word. He says, I'm not just praying for the people here now. I'm praying for those who will believe through their word. And what does he pray? That they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in what? Unity so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Now, that is sweet. That's his high priestly prayer. He says that the testimony of the church will be tested and proven by its unity. And so the world's right to say Jesus is all about unity, right? The world's absolutely right. Satan said Hath God truly said that you may not eat of any of the trees in the garden? You see, Satan always takes a bit of the truth and then twists it. You understand. And so, of course, Jesus is about unity. But what the world absolutely hates is the method that Jesus brings unity. The world will have nothing to do with the justice and holiness and wrath of God against all ungodliness that required the Son's blood to be shed. The world wants to lift Jesus up as a moral example, who preached peace. And then they want to eviscerate Jesus Christ of anything that produces the peace. Eviscerate him of his blood being the propitiation for our sins. No man who's proud wants to go under the blood. And then it wants to eviscerate the techniques, the providential kindnesses of God that produce unity among men particularly the church. And how do we get unity? Well, it says very clearly here, what? It says, verse 19, for there must also be factions among you so that those who are approved may become evident among us. world hates this. What this says is that it is God's sovereign, providential, loving, charitable will that there be factions in his church. Why? Well, because without factions, it will not be evident who has sincere faith and who doesn't. Are you with me? Factions will show who is approved and who is not approved. What does it mean to be approved? Someone approved of God is someone who has sincere Christian faith. That must mean that there are those in the church who are disapproved who will also become evident when those who are approved become evident because it will be the division, the faction that will show it, right? Right? This word faction is the Greek word that we transliterate into heresies. All right? 
There must be heresies among them so that it will be evident who has God's approval. In other words, doctrinal war in the church is God's method of making clear who is a sincere Christian. And you're all sitting there going, "Ah, there's Tim arguing his own case. You know, Tim loves conflict. And so this was the perfect verse for Tim. There he goes again. And listen, people, I tell you, I hate conflict. I hate it. But you know the fruit is so sweet, those who are approved become evident. Some of you I do marriage counseling with, and I love to sit there. Because as I counsel you in your marriages, it's evident who among you is approved and who is not. You realize that all pastors and elders and older women do is they mediate conflict between you. You do realize this, right? Has this occurred to you? That what marriage counseling is, is conflict between a man and a woman. And... From the time of Moses till today, we have men that we set apart, lay hands on, pray for the ordination of the Holy Spirit, and those men spend all their time mediating conflict in the church. I mean, has this occurred to you? (laughs) You know? We listen to your complaints against each other, and then we adjudicate them. We blow whistles, we put up stop signs, We flip around and put on our headlights, right? We don't talk about how a man and a woman can live together best if there's no right and wrong and and, and you're just part of the grand tapestry of this marriage and, and golly gee, can't we all get along? Go and be well and be at peace. No, we say you're evidently approved. You are evidently disapproved. There is no fault marriage counseling in our church. We try to find the fault. (laughs) And it's not because we love conflict. We're trying to bring unity and peace to a marriage. And so we have to slap you. And you say, oh, there goes Tim again. I'll bet he does slap people. And I say, never, never, never. Although I did read last night, very late, a biography of Calvin's pastoral work where he and the other pastors would get together every quarter right before the Lord's Supper to examine each other. And they would rebuke each other as pastors and elders. And this one time, this pastor was just flipped out mad at one of the men in his church that wasn't listening to the sermon as he should. And the pastor beat him to a pulp in front of everyone. And so that pastor got rebuked by the other pastors in private, but they had a record of it. But, you know, people, I have absolutely no desire to have any physical confrontation with any of you, especially David Baker and Jeff Moore, Laura Moore. I want to be on your team for roller derby. (laughs) 
I had a dream this week, a man in this church who always used breath mitts and always looked perfect, was here for many, many years, and then it came out that he was an alcoholic, and then it came out for three years he had been sleeping with a woman other than the mother of his children. And oh, he was buff. And I had a dream this week, and my dream was that he was punching me, and it hurt. It really hurt. And it's the weirdest thing about that dream. You know what it was? I didn't have my fists up. I wasn't dancing, floating like a butterfly, and I certainly wasn't stinging like a bee. I was taking it without protecting myself and without hitting back. And I thought, what a twisted dream for a man to have. And then I realized it was a metaphor about the ministry. What does a pastor do? Why do pastor's sons never want to go in the ministry? (laughs) Because they've watched their father, and then they've watched their mother get bitter. Because the husband takes so many unfair attacks. People, I'm not talking about hitting somebody. I'm saying that we have to say no in order to bring back peace. There must be conflict. There must be heresies. There must be division over heresy. If you are going to have peace, there is no unity without God showing through division who is approved and who is a hypocrite. Listen, do you know what the church is in America today? Do you know what America is today? America is every single State of the Union address, every inaugural address, and every party platform is pandering to the masses. That's all it is. We will take the money of other people and we will give it to you. That's what the pharmaceutical program of Bush was. It makes no difference whether you're whether you're Republican or Democrat, that's what politics is today. And the only question is, who votes for them and therefore who gets the money? (laughs) If it's Republican, it's the corporations that get the money. If it's the Democrats, it's the minorities that get the money. And now the Republicans have to figure out if they get the minorities to vote with the rich people. I mean, this is my thumbnail sketch of American politics today, right? But then you have all these competing interests, and you're saying peace, peace everywhere, and you're like giving money all over the place, so what do you have to do? Well, what you have to do is have your Supreme Court declare that pornography is a civil right and have all the men at home docile. Do you understand me? Do you understand me? And so all the men are pacified by the drug, the soma, that the government has declared to be a civil right. Do you understand me? Sexual immorality is the drug that the United States of America government knows will pacify its people. And the cost of sexual immorality is the slaughter of unborn children. And no-fault divorce. 
And all America is today is an inability of anybody to say no. Of anybody to discipline the evil so that the good can be evident. So that those who have approval can be clear. And that's what the church in America is. Do you understand me? This is really simple. The church in America today is the unbelievably sophisticated project of preaching righteousness in such a way that it is not dangerous. And so we have sports, and sports are a morality play. They're a way of us feeling that they're good guys, bad guys. I mean, you know, you got the New England Patriots. Right? And then Peyton Manning. And who needs righteousness? And who needs wickedness? And who needs judgment? When you have the Super Bowl. Who needs manhood? We pay the blacks to be men. And all of us are sitting there going, you know he's right. And then, no he isn't. Because if he is, then I have to begin to live by faith and see what is smacking me in the face every minute of my life. I have to repent of pornography. I have to become a real man. I have to take a wife if I want sex. And then when we make love, it has to be fruitful because God says, be fruitful and multiply. And then there's all these little children. Like all of shoots and that isn't cool. (laughs) Because the burden, it's enough to scare a man to death. And, And I mean, that's a Christian life that's like, it's overwhelming. It's like, I can't handle it. And so what we have in the church and in our country and in our school systems and in our universities is a grand scheme to eviscerate the world of good and evil. (coughs) The civil magistrate will not punish evil and reward good. The church will not preach judgment and repentance and righteousness. The church preaches it less than the Roman Catholic Church does today. And yet we're the ones that believe in justification by faith alone. But we cannot bring ourselves to call people to repentance. <laughs> you know? It's like, hee, hee. Ain't no one but his chickens in here, master. And that's the church. For there must also be factions among you so that those who are approved may become evident among you. What this means is that God uses division in his providential sovereign way to bring unity to the church. Every single sermon from this pulpit should divide perfectly. The secrets of your hearts should be exposed. It should be the word of God sharper than any two-edged sword. Division, 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 so that those who are approved can be shown forth. (coughs) You should never dull the knife of the sword of the Spirit. 
Your preachers should be trained to divide the word of truth rightly so that the word of truth is free to do the work that God intended it to do. Right? It's right. And I'm not bright. And I'm not smart. And I'm not courageous. Any idiot can see it. My wife hates me. And so what are we going to do? Are we going to live by faith? Are we going to trust that it's God's providential means to divide the church? You know, the only way this church can have the peace and unity that it enjoys is to have shepherds who divide us. Don't you see their work? Don't you see them working hard all the time to divide us? Those of you who have had marriage counseling recently, isn't that what the elders did for you? They divided you. They show who had the approval and who didn't. And it's not... <clears throat> Thank you. <laughs> yeah. I love you. And you know how we make the decision who has the approval? You know, in the division, you're fighting, and so you ask us to come. And you know, we have very sophisticated methods. The two things, we listen and we watch. And recently, I've been counseling with one of the couples here. And you know why I know who has God's approval? Because one of those two partners moved his chair over to her and put his arm around her, and it wasn't a show. And here's a little trick. Humility. Humility. People, there's no way no way that we can have the kingdom of God if we will not allow God's sovereign purpose in division. And if what you want is a church where nobody will ever be spun off, this is the wrong church because we have unity. And the way we have unity is we have whistles and tickets and signals and traffic signs galore. Nowhere that God didn't say to have them, so we're entirely okay. I'm sorry, but we're entirely okay with you using alcohol. <laughs> right? But gossip? What? <laughs> Adultery? What? Drunkenness? What? Said the Baptist. You had to say that, didn't you? <laughs> nah, once a Baptist, always a Baptist. That's what federal vision proves. Gayness, wop. And to help the wop, we say sodomy. Get it? It gives more pain, and that's what we want. Because we want the word of God sharper than a two-edged sword splitting between joint and marrow. Yeah! 
And that's the reason there's unity in this church. It's not unity in this church because both Drew and Luke and Anthony and Jeff and Adam and Seth and Aaron and Ben all have the same purpose and opinions. (laughs) We have unity because we have elders who will rule them. Okay, does this make sense? Who will blow the whistle, issue tickets, put up stop signs and stoplights? Does this make sense? And so, again, the verse is what? Listen to it. There must also be factions among you so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Okay? God's sovereign purpose in division. And I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to tell you that over the course of my work in the church as a shepherd, I have seen many, many people approved by God by division. It is so sweet. When I look at wives and husbands who love their spouse in the midst of marriage counseling, who beseech their spouse for peace, who beseech their spouse to discipline the children of the home so that finally there will be peace in their home, who beseech their spouse to give up pornography so the marriage bed can be pure. What a sweet thing to see the godliness of this congregation. You've got to have faith. What's sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander. This is what the whole world wants but has no idea how to get. It walks around blathering on about peace and our time, about diversity and about pluralism and about unity and about the melting pot. It knows nothing of unity and peace. Do you understand this? And so what we have to do is believe that God has said, be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. The one that sows to his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to the Spirit. We have to believe in the division. We have to want the division here such that those approved by God with sincere faith will become evident to all, right? We have to want it. And we have to live with the fact that many hypocrites will be exposed. We don't delight in it. It's not what we're seeking. We're seeking those who are approved by God to become clear. And that gives us such joy that we're willing to put up with the tares being pulled out by the Spirit of God, not by rigid elders who are running around trying to pull up every tear. No, no, no. I trust me. You come to us with so much crud, we're not even interested in going out and looking for more crud. But when those with God's approval become clear, those who are hypocrites also become clear. And I'm sorry, but God has ordained it. Do you understand? There will be the judgment seat of God when he will separate the sheep from the goats. He has said it, and it glorifies him to do that. So don't you ever ask the church to avoid the separation that God has said will be at the center of the judgment. Remember my father. 
you are not living for God, and you are gone. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yes! And so, when we look in Scripture, we find this. This is written by whom? This is actually written by the apostle of love, who is the one that had, I can never remember, he had his head on Jesus' chest, his breast, at the Last Supper. This is John, the apostle of love, okay? And here's what he says. This is in 1 John chapter 2, beginning with verse 15. Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away. Remember the, 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 the anthem that the choir sang. That's why we long for death and heaven. The world is passing away and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. Children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not really of us, for if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. You don't like that, do you? We're not talking about people that move to a different part of the country. We're talking about people who are under the discipline of the elders, and they stiff-arm them, and they leave. And you want us to just say that there are a lot of good churches in town, and that doesn't indicate anything. And I say, well, but you do want it to indicate something when somebody submits to the authority of the elders and their rebuke. And you want to celebrate it being evident that they are approved, right? Right? you got to take the bad with the good. Do you know how many people have left this church because of hard hearts before God? It constantly happens. It doesn't make any difference whether I'm the one that's dealing with them or Wayne Huck. And you got to admit, he's opposite of me. <laughs> and so listen, we live by faith. We know that it's appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. And we have, we've, we have fled to the cross for peace with God. And so we go out into the world seeking to reconcile the world to God. They don't know they need reconciliation because it's like, dude. And the unborn children die, and the old people die, and the sodomites have sex, and they get sick and die. It's like, peace. Come on, wake up, sleeper, wake up. Wake up. Okay? One last time, and then I'll shut up. Verse 19, for there must also be factions among you so that those who are approved may become evident among you. And if this is God's way, who are we to say, well, 
That's God's way, but if it were me, I wouldn't do it that way. I thought everything that God does is a delight to us. I thought we love him and his ways and his perfections. Do we love him even if it cuts through our family? Huh? Ah, That one's hard, isn't it? That one's so hard. But Jesus said that we must hate our father and our mother and our brother and our sister. And although some of you argued with me when I said it once, it does include wife. (laughs) You know? He will brook no competitors. I am a jealous God. Okay? 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 Amen? Come on, say amen. Amen. Okay, all right, let's end. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you are a holy God and that your holiness is not changed by the sinful schemes of man. Our Father God, we pray that you will revive the church, revive the preaching of the church, revive the elders, revive the Titus II women, revive the deacons, so that once again we may live in unity and peace. And that the divisions will multiply that are godly such that it will be evident those beautiful, sincere souls who love Jesus Christ with an undying love. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.